Today I want to jump right back into our message on uh, our series in Philippians. And we're talking about uh, joy. This has been the premise of this book, right? Lots of stuff going on in the book of Philippians, but chapter 1 frames this incredible picture for us about how we as God's people can have joy in any circumstance of life. That's the point of the book. The book is Paul in the midst of a dire circumstance. He's on death row, essentially, uh, waiting to figure out whether or not he's going to live, exudes a quality of life that everybody can have when our hearts are rooted in and focused on the truth and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And so today, the rubber meets the road here. We talked about suffering and a couple of critical issues in the book of Philippians, but what I want us to see right now is that there's a pretty powerful endgame in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 1. All of what happens regarding joy culminates in this internal conversation Paul has with himself that he allows us access to see. As he, he is literally talking to himself in a prison cell saying, do I want to live or do I want to die? And so he brings up naturally in the course of this teaching a good opportunity for us to talk about uh, joy in death. So a couple of weeks ago I told you that I've been using some of my free time to catch up on some movies. And in particular, I've been working my way through the, the Marvel superhero franchise. I used to watch a lot of movies, but life's been busy, and I haven't done it. But as of late, I've been trying to use some time to catch up. And so as I'm working my way through this franchise, in my viewing travels, I finally came across the, the Thor superhero movies, uh, which is a, a modern-day rendition of some old Viking mythology. Most of you that know me know I'm a total history dork. I love all kinds of history, including the great mythologies of the world, because they tell stories about <clears throat> people and how they understood life. But Vikings are, are interesting to me. And so in case you don't know who Thor is, the, the, the historical Thor, you know, he's the, uh, he's the Norse god, the Viking god who carries the, uh, the hammer. We have some Scandinavian folk in our, our bodies, so I'm sure you know who this is. Hopefully you're not praying to him. That's not the point of this message. We want you to focus on Jesus. But nonetheless, he's this, like, combatant Viking. He's like the lord of war. He's super powerful. And so this comic book series is basically dips into an ancient history and creates this modern superhero story called, called Thor, right? And the, Thor is obviously known for his uh, incredible strength and this, like, limitless power he has in this hammer. And so in the first movie, there's this scene that really catches my attention. The film's premise is that the mighty Thor, he's sent to Earth by his father Odin. Odin's like the god of all gods in the Viking faith. And he is sent to Earth as a powerless man because he is so powerful in life that he, he, he becomes incredibly arrogant. And so his father says, listen, for you to become the kind of god you need to be, he says, I'm going to put you on earth, but you have no powers, not at all. <clears throat> so towards the end of the movie, he learns his lesson. He's subjected to humanity. You're probably sensing some what we would call presuppositional Christian themes. These themes are prevalent in many cultures because we believe we've been made in God's image, and many cultures try to call out to God. But here's a great example, at least in this kind of comic book franchise, of a god getting on earth, but he's not really a god at this point. And he grows in his humility, and at the end of the movie, lays his life down to save the world from destruction. Now, everyone watching his death is devastated by the loss, but not for long, because in the story, Thor is eventually resurrected by the power of his hammer. The hammer is like the god in the book, if you will, or in the movie. And so the central event of this film highlights this epic human theme that we see in so much of the world's literature and film. They are cosmic ideas of life and death. And in particular, this narrative is certainly prevalent in the Christian faith, but in this story and in many others, the idea is that through these cosmic ideas of life and death, new life often comes through the beautiful act of someone who is willing to die so others can live. This attitude is rooted in the person of Jesus. We will see it in Paul at the end of this, uh, this, this talk, because the, the place we're going is that Paul 
he sacrifices eternal comfort to, for, the, for the well-being of others. He basically gets to this place in life where um, his sacrifice is actually for the well-being of other people. And we know that he's doing this because he has fallen deeply in love with Jesus. Now, take Thor for a minute, and let's just kind of, you know, spread it across the globe. Interestingly enough, just about every culture has stories like this. The names and the faces change, but the premise of the story does not. And this is because all people, even those who are very far from God, have been made in the image of God, and they bear his thumbprint uh, on their lives. So what I'm saying here is the reason there is commonality, if you will, in the way people see the world, if you want to know one of the reasons why life and death is a question that every human has, as well as other things, this is just the one we're talking about today, meaning and purpose come up a lot too, that's because we've, we've been wired with these realities in us. Life and death is... Is a, it's, it's rooted in the Christian faith. There's purpose and meaning to it. And as people drift from God, they still have the same questions. They might turn to different places or answers for the solution. But nonetheless, death is a question. Why? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? And death is a, a very real issue in every culture. Because of this, every culture has a form of, of a coping mechanism, if you will, to deal with it. So today, I want to look at how the Apostle Paul, a man deeply rooted in the love of Jesus deals with, with the problem of death in his own life. And remember, falsely locked up in a prison cell, awaiting execution, he's been faithful to Jesus and put in a jail cell because of it. And although we know he lives, at this point in history, he does not know whether or not he's going to live. He is waiting to find out whether or not he's going to be executed for what he's done for God. He is literally, not figuratively or from some textbook, he is literally trying to figure out whether or not he's going to live another day. And this raises the, the question that I want to address this morning. Why is it that Paul, faced with death, is able to find a peace and joy in the fact that he might die? He is faced with death, yet has an inner joy. And we begin by looking at the, the darker side of this teaching. We have to start here in order to appreciate the light. It leads me to the first truth that we need to understand this morning. Do not leave in the middle of this talk. You're going to be sad if you do, okay? I'm just warning you right now. Every person has to deal with the uncomfortable fact that death is a certainty for all of us. I mean, I wish we could kind of sugarcoat this or figure out some other way, but the truth is everybody knows this. Whether or not we embrace it is another thing, but everybody knows that death is an inevitability for everyone. Philippians 1.20, here's where we see Paul really dealing with this. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body by life, whether by life or by death. So this, this paradigm of life and death is in his head right now. And he's praying here that no matter what happens, God would give him courage to face whatever his fate is going to be. Now, this fact here, this idea that every person has to deal with death, this fact is why most people have distinct memories of the first time they had to deal with death. I want to get very personal here for a moment. Um, every single person likely has a memory of death the first time you had to see it or deal with it. My first experience is, is a vivid memory it was May 18th, 1988. Uh, it was four days before my 12th birthday. Uh, that week, I just expected to get a bike. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen, which was a big deal. Uh, for a kid in Brooklyn, we had to lug him up three flights of steps and store him in a back apartment, so bikes were not easy to come by. But nonetheless, it was at that age where, uh, for a 12-year-old, that was like getting your, your first car without the loud stereo, you know? So I'm waiting on the bike. That's, that's what my whole world is about that week. But that was also a week, unbeknownst to me at that point, that, that was the, the week I was going to lose my first grandmother. Now, at this time, I mentioned my family still living in an apartment building in Brooklyn. 
And the reason I share this is because my grandmother, who we called Tessie, that was kind of her nickname, uh, she lived one floor below us in the same building. Literally, you could go down a flight of steps, walk across the floor of the apartment building, and there was my grandmother's apartment. She was very close with my father and our family, and we took care of her for a lot of years, but she was also a pretty uh, old-school, tough uh, Italian woman. And I was super close with her. I mean, she was like a second mom to me. Whenever I would run away from home, which was like three days a week, I would run away down to her uh, apartment. You know, I'd go down there, and uh, I had these incredibly sweet memories. I'd come home from school, and she would teach me how to cook Italian food. I'll never forget I got my first lesson on a zeppoli, which is like a fried Italian pastry. And, and while we were cooking and talking about life, uh, she would teach me how to speak Italian. And so I'm 11 years old, and life revolves around, around my grandmother. I'm super close with her. Um, so many sweet memories from her. <clears throat> one of the sweetest I have in my life. Both my grandmothers were wonderful women, but um, this is the first one I lost. And so that morning on May 18th, I get up like I do any other day. I go to leave my apartment building. My grandmother is always awake before we leave for school. She's standing, uh, doing what she does every morning, Monday through Friday. She's standing on a little uh, set of steps inside the apartment building, and she gives me two quarters to buy a little thing of milk. At, uh, at school. This is before, like, you know, you had to pay for lunch back in those days, and everything was like uh, an expensive venture. And so <clears throat> she gave me money for milk every, every morning going to school. It probably sounds like I grew up in the third century, but, you know, <laughs> I, I did not, I promise. This was only a few years back. But nonetheless, this is what she does. So from, from A to Z, Grandma Tessie's with me. And so <clears throat> I had no idea after I took those quarters that life was, was going to change for me dramatically just a few hours later. So school releases. I'm in the fifth grade. And I walk to school by myself. That's just a norm for a kid in the city. I go to school by myself, and I come home by myself. Uh, so this is what I'm accustomed to. School lets out. I, can't, I cannot forget it. I'm talking to my super good Jewish friend I had. His name is Eric Lux. We're discussing whatever. Who knows? And I come out, and there I see uh, my father, Tony, and my Uncle Frankie. And yes, I'm not making this up. I actually got an Uncle Frankie. I got a cousin Frankie. I got all those names in the family. Uh, they're, they're, they're just there. And I come out, and, and something's wrong. Immediately, I got this internal sense that says, why is my father and my Uncle Frankie here? This is just not right. So <clears throat> I walk up to them kind of reluctantly, and my dad says, hey. And I say, hey. And I just straight up look at him, and I'm like, what's, what's going on? They have nev he's never picked me up from school before, nor will he ever again after this, this venture. Something's not right. We begin walking home. And I keep pestering him. I'm like, Dad, what's up here? What's going on? He doesn't say anything. <clears throat> so finally, once we clear the masses of the kids, he just stops. He turns me to him, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, uh, my father's a pretty direct and blunt man. Uh, he says, your grandmother died today of a sudden and massive heart attack. And I'll tell you, uh, I can still feel that pain right now. That was my first real contact with death. And in that moment, it completely overwhelmed me. And I joke a lot in here. It's a true joke, but nonetheless, it's kind of a joke how... My wife will tell you I am not a crier. Um, crying for some people is a sign of, of happiness. For me, I, I, it's just not what I do. And so crying has never been a normal thing for me. And I have joked that I can count on one hand the times in life that I have really cried. I'm not against crying. Please hear me here. But I can count on one hand the times I've really cried with some fingers left over. And this was, without question, uh, the first one. It was such an overwhelming feeling at that point that I just immediately started crying, and I, I fell down. I, like, lost control of my body. And my dad, thankfully, caught me before I hit the ground. He picked me up. Again, now I'm a fifth grader now. I'm not like a little kid, maybe even considered husky by those standards uh, <laughs> that day, right? My dad throws me on his shoulders, and he just carries me home. And I'm leaving, like, a trail of water all the way, all the way back, right? It was terrible. 
Now, <clears throat> that memory is vivid. And in a not-so-good way, I was able to see a very similar pain in my children's eyes last year. It's the cycle of life, right? When I lose my second grandmother uh, to cancer, just as close to her as I am uh, my first. She's a great-grandmother now to my children. Um, and great-grandmothers in my family, are, there's no difference between them and grandmothers. It's pretty much the same thing. So it's almost like you have two, two sets of grandparents. She's just as involved as you know, my parents are in my kids' lives. And so when I, when I sit them down at the dinner table, and they knew Baba, that's what we called her, was sick for a while, uh, it, it's clear to them that upon sharing their passing, my son was a little older, so this made, uh, even though he definitely had an emotional response to it, um, I think he understood a little more than my girls did. When I share with them that she has passed, it's clear they don't have a place in their life either for death. And in many ways, it, it breaks my heart because it is the beginning of seeing some of the benevolent naivete that children are afforded the luxury of having. It, it starts to fade away. And so they start asking questions like, okay, well, she's not here, so where, where did she go? You know, when is she going to come back? <clears throat> then they want to know why she left in the first place. You know, their expectation... Hear me here. Their expectation is much like an adult's wish. Their, their assumption at that age is that the people, and it was mine too, the people that we love most, the people that are around us, are going to be with us forever. It is abnormal when we find out they will not. As we get older in life, the shock of that wears off. We, we might get a little more accustomed to dealing with it, but the pain of it does, does not. The child's expectation, naively, is that we will be here forever, and it is the adult's wish, and it's almost just as naive. But we all know that this is not, not how it works. And so this is why I say nobody in his or her right mind likes death. And every one of you likely has a very similar story of stories about death, whether it was a, a close person, a family member, whatever. Those vivid images of death, maybe even recently, they stick with us. And I wish we didn't have stories like this to tell, but the truth is, part of being human means we will, and we will have future stories like this to tell, including our own one day. That's why it's important to know how to deal with death, because no one escapes it, or escapes having to personally deal with it. It is an inevitable reality, but it's, it's also an ironic reality. Why don't you think about this? If you think about death, let's just zero out for a moment. The response most of us have towards death carries with it a great and almost ridiculous irony. Lots of things unite the human race around the globe, but death is probably the most common one. Death is pretty much the most common occurrence on Earth, yet despite its commonality and the fact, think about this, it's no secret, we all know it is going to happen someday. We still struggle with it, and some people do more than struggle with it. They are just wrecked by it when it happens. They, they have no way to deal with it. So in a sense, they might physically live, but internally they die. For example, the Earth, okay, 7.5 billion people on Earth, right around that, today. And every year, 55 and a half million of those 7.5 billion people die. Massive numbers. In the U.S. alone, according to the CDC, Center for Disease Control, about 2.6 million people die annually just in the United States, okay? So doing rough math, if you start looking at these massive numbers, about, uh, on a daily basis globally, about 153,000 people die uh, every day around the world. That's 6,300 people an hour. By the time we are done worshiping this morning, there will be 6,300 less people on this earth. The numbers are, are they're just commonly staggering. And this is where I think there's an irony. Because on one hand, death is pretty much the most common thing on earth. It is a universal, universal and undeniable reality for everyone. 
No matter where you go, every personal culture knows at some point they're going to have to deal with the death of a loved one and eventually their own death. But for as common as it is, humanity still has this incredibly hard time dealing with it. There is something that just does not feel right about losing people you deeply love. That uneasy feeling we get when we think about a lost loved one is, is really an evidence of the way God has created us. So scripture teaches us God creates us to live forever. This is the way it is supposed to be. However, one of the consequences of sin is that humanity is subjected to death and separation from God and each other. The physical death is, an, is now a reality for us. And so I just want to affirm to a certain degree here that in a very real way, that uneasy feeling that we have about death, the fact that it happens all the time but people don't ever really get used to it, the, fact, the feeling you get thinking about the loss of loved ones, or it's very common to talk to people who are really afraid of their own death. This is your way, your soul's way of affirming that something is wrong with dying. That's a right feeling. That said, here we have this guy named Paul, who despite about to be executed, right, he's at this place where he's okay with it. I'm not saying he's good with it, but he's okay with dying. He's a man living as if he's been freed from the curse of death. He's a follower of Jesus, and he's gotten to this place where he deeply dislikes death. That's why he's wrestling with the personal tension that he's facing in it. He's, he's really trying to figure out what is the way to go here. Yet he speaks now as a person, as a man who no longer fears him. And the source of that power, this is what we want to talk about today. The source of power behind the, that confidence is what we're trying to figure out. And we certainly will get to the, the, the pointy end of the spear and the back end of this talk. But before we do that, I want to look at two philosophies on death. They're from two men that I have quoted in this room before. Um, today we'll look at the Christian worldview on death and the atheist worldview of death. And I want to look at their perspectives on it, Dr. Stephen Hawking and the Apostle Paul. So the first perspective is taken from an interview with the world-renowned physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking. And in case you don't know, Dr. Hawking, um, I, I quote several atheists, ones that I really respect, and I do really respect these men, the ones that are consistent. There are only a handful of men in the world that truly are atheists that live as if they are atheists. Most people that claim to be atheists, they have a very hybridized understanding of life. They don't believe in God, yet they have some of the, the emotive realities of believing in a God. A guy like uh, Hawkins does, does not. He is like from A to Z a consistent atheist. That's why we're going to look at what he says. And what makes his statements all the more powerful is that he's completely paralyzed due to a neurological disease that he had for pretty much most of his life. So he spends his life... As, as like a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, right? So death is a very real reality for him. And in May of 2011, a reporter asks him if he fears death, and this is what he says. He says, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm also in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. I regard the brain as a computer. Here's, here's his belief. Here's how he's okay with it. I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. So in his worldview, what he's saying is the reason we have to figure out what to do after we die is because we're afraid of, of, we're afraid of darkness. We need a coping mechanism, but he says this is not a real mechanism. So let's think about this for a minute. When you believe this way about life and death, you, you just see it as a statistic. It is, in the, in the coldest sense, an inevitable reality. It tends to highlight how insignificant you are. And in this case, he relegates, think about this, your parents, your grandparents, your children, your loved ones, your best friends, the people in your wedding. Those people are broken down computers. That's what they become. Uh, seeing death this way, right, these people we place high value on in life for good reason, they have no value in this worldview. 
And if people have no value, if life has no value, then you run the high risk of a, of a potentially debilitating disease where life is hopelessness and, uh, and death is, is more hopeless. It prohibits you from having any real joy, meaning, or worth in this life because in the end, you and I are just insignificant drops of water in a really big ocean called life. You are literally, like the sermon ends after the statistic from the CDC today, if Hawkins is preaching to you this morning. You're relegated to a statistic. One day, you and I are going to be one of the 153,000 people who don't live to see tomorrow. And in this worldview, death defeats you. We are reading here what Paul and other places in Scripture talk about. This is the sting of death. This is the reality that it doesn't last forever like this. That's what happens when death shepherds your heart. You think like this. The problem is that most people don't think like this. Most people, even if they don't believe in God or the resurrected Jesus like we just celebrated, they would say, I have a really hard time believing that my life matters that little. They don't live like that. It doesn't sit well with them. The legacy of our lives, we want to be more than just some number on a statistical website. We want to believe we have meaning and significance beyond that. And we do. This leads us to the second worldview on death. Here's the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at two verses from him today. Well, the one, our primary one, but there's two, two major teachings in two different parts of the Bible that he gives us about death. And he's a guy facing it. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, which is what we're going to read now and what we'll read at the end of this, he is on the back end of what happened in the book of Philippians. He's, he's alive. He knows it. So he's, he's back writing this story to these churches. On the contrary, listen to how Paul, faced with the same kind of death as Hawkins describes this. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death is not a broken down computer. It's not a fairy tale. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, he says, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, right? And the power of sin is a law. We just talked about that. The fall of man is where death comes into the world. That's where the sting is. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What takes the stinger out is the grace of Jesus. He removes the sin, and with it, the death. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Not even the fear of death. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Interestingly enough, yeah, I like it, amen. Maybe like at least five more. So I believe I'm supposed to be doing this, right? Unless you're all like, I'm going to die. I don't really need this. Batman vs. Superman's at 12. I'm going to check out a little early. To go, you know. Think about this. In, in both places, this verse in Corinthians, what we're reading today in Philippians, Paul equates victory over death and life, and life in both places he talks about being fruitful labor for the Lord. Okay, so it's not just like life, meaning I get to live. It's life abundant. It's life meaning like there's a purpose and meaning beyond any purpose and meaning that can be offered to me in this world. It is the pursuit of my, my Jesus, living and loving him and laboring for him. Fruitful labor is the end game of life. So if you believe like Paul, if you begin to see life and death the way Jesus wants you to, then you develop a very different perspective on it. Sure, you know life will be hard and death is never going to be easy, but the difference is you live knowing that your life matters because, once again, this is a great example of the premise of this book. God meant it for good. Every hardship we're reading about in Paul's life and in our own, if we will trust Christ, he can make something good out of this. In this case, death signifies the fact that our life really matters. 
It matters in the eyes of God. And death, like everything else in life that we deal with, is a circumstance. This has been a big theme. It is an emotional reality. I'm not denying that. But it is one more circumstance we have to navigate in life. Circumstances were never meant to define our joy. The grace of Jesus, the authority of Jesus was. So if we see it this way, then it doesn't make it easy, but it gives us a hope. Amen. There's something God promises to bring good out of it. When you believe like this, you become a person who deeply values this life. And I would say when you understand life like this, you can't look at people as broken computers. You can't have that kind of hardened apathy. You have to look at them as people that matter to God. And you have to love them like Jesus has loved you. There is a fruitful labor that comes out of having a healthy understanding of death. It brings value to life. Your life is more than just the 78.8 years of life expectancy that the CDC says you have on earth. Because death no longer has a sting. It's merely one more earthly pain that God in his infinite grace has managed to redeem for the good of his people. And so what happens is when you no longer fear death, it leads you to Jesus' peace. And when you have Jesus' peace, you can live with joy at the center of your heart. Because he has brought you to a place of utter freedom in many areas. But in this place, we're talking about death. He brings you to the place where death is no longer guiding your life. Experiencing life to the full is what is guiding your life. When that happens, you're no longer bound by the, the restraints of life or death. Neither one of them defines you. As a result, Jesus does. You live as you were meant to, in the eternal life-giving power, hope, and joy of Jesus. The resurrection, I mean, I know we're three weeks after Easter, but let's still think about it a little bit. The resurrection, Jesus sits on the throne of both life and death, which is why we shouldn't fear either. We should have a hope in him and the fact that he is in, he's Lord of both. Amen. Now, this begs an interesting question, right? What's causing Paul to have this kind of, of confidence? Well, we could accurately call it joy in death. And remember, joy does not mean bubbling or emotional happiness. It certainly can express itself that way. But joy is not a feeling in Scripture. Uh, the best way I like to describe it is it's, it's an inner peace, a resolution, if you will. It's a confidence provided by Jesus. That's why it cannot be taken Joy is in you because Jesus is joy. It's not just being happy. He's not happy about this, what's going on in his life. We're not happy about death. I'm not saying be happy about it. I'm saying can we have a joy and confidence in God doing something through it? Why is Paul able to find a peace and joy in the fact that he might die in the prison cell? Well, because he knows that to live is Christ. And I've already taught on that statement a few weeks ago, so I will not rehash it today. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Today we're going to add to that teaching by talking about the second clause of it, to die, he says, is gain. To live is Jesus, to die is gain. This leads us to the second truth we need to understand this morning. It's where the darkness of death is lit up. Why is Paul confident? Because Paul knows that for those who are in Jesus, to die means you get more Jesus. Let me say that again. Paul knew that for those who are in Jesus, to die means you get more Jesus. Philippians 1, 1 through 25, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here's the wrestling. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He's saying, I don't want to do this anymore. He's saying, it would be really good if Jesus just took me home right now. And I'm not in this cell anymore. And there's no more hardship. This thorn in the side, whatever it is, all the pain he's dealing with to serve Jesus, he says, I desire to not have to deal with this anymore. To be with Jesus. It's better by far. For me, anyways, he's saying. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What he's saying, but I know my, t- my time is not done. There is much work to do. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress 
and joy in the faith. Now Paul's writings here teach us your view of death explicitly reveals how much Jesus is at the center of your life. How you see death really, really defines how you understand life in Christ. That's the premise of the teaching I gave on Philippians 1.21. We said that for the Christian to live for something else, this is what Paul means by for to live is Christ, for you to live for something else as the highest priority in your life other than Jesus, friends, families, kids, wives, they are high, high, high priorities, people in life. But they are not a higher priority than God. And you will never love people as well or other things as well unless you love God well first. That's why the great commandments are in this order. Love God and neighbor. Any person on earth qualifies as neighbor, right? What, what I'm saying here is, is, is for, if for you to live is for my spouse or my kids or my family, means you're going to start missing what it means to be defined by the truth of Jesus. And you might even, you might even have some, some abuses, some unhealthy rhythms that develop out of that. To live like this is, is, a, is a contradiction of the highest sorts. It's a Christian contradiction. Because to live for Christ means you recognize he is Lord. So when something else is Lord in your life... Eventually, that will betray you. That's the point of that talk, right? Our response to death is perhaps one of the sharpest examples of this. Because there is no anything that can satisfy us permanently and eternally like Jesus can. So let me begin by saying that this section here is, is not a, a statement or a denial of the emotional hardship of death. There are places in the Gospels where Jesus really resonates with his disciples when they realize he's not going to be with them forever. Death is a human emotion. There is no spiritual bravado here, nothing at all. It is hard. So what I'm about to say is not like some form of arrogance. And even with Jesus at the center of your life, death is never going to be easy to deal with. Rather, what Paul says, it's, just, it's another reminder of the main point of this book, that if we understand death as a circumstance that God uses for good and for our glory, or for his glory and our good, then what happens is, no matter how difficult it is, you can have hope and joy in a circumstance, in particular this one, death, as you endure it. There is a hope in it. There is a light at the end of that tunnel. And this is why we see conflict in Paul's life right now. He's struggling with whether or not living or dying is the best option for him in the midst of a terrible trial. And I would dare to say that this question he's asking himself, should I stay or should I go, what's best for me, this is a question that the majority of people on this earth have already made up. For most people, their ultimate hope is in the fact that they want to go on living. If you were to say, well, would you rather die or live? Most people in their right mind are going to say, I want to live, and I'd like to live forever. And that is a really good desire. There is nothing wrong with that. It is an evidence of the fact that God has built us to live forever. However, if for you to live is to live forever like that, then one day you're going to realize that that is an idol, and it will betray you. If all you have to hold on to is the hope, the personal hope that you will live forever, it is going to be a hard reality when you realize you will not. That is where to live for something else that is not Jesus betrays you. It is inescapable that your hope, your hope cannot outlast the reality of death. Inescapable. In verses 22 through 24, we get this amazing insight into how Paul has, has reconciled this reality in his own mind. Into how he's answering the question, life or death? And his answer is a mind-blower. Summarizing his statements, and contrary to what the more common answer to this question would be for most people, I would like to live forever without the grace of Jesus, what he says is this. He says, it is better for my personal gain. What is best for me, the Apostle Paul, is if, I, if I'm to die in this cell. It would be great if I do not have to deal with this anymore. He says this because this is what a person who has concretely chosen to live with Jesus at the center of their life says. 
This is one of the hard realities, one of the fruitful realities of recognizing Jesus as the Lord of death. And why is it that Paul is able to find peace and joy in the fact that he might die? Because he knows to die means he gets more Jesus. Amen. He knows to die means he gets more Jesus. So I want to give you a quote here. N.T. Wright, respected English pastor, professor, and theologian. He says this about Paul's joyful view on death. Uh, Wright's written some of the greatest stuff on, on this subject, and his commentary on Philippians is amazing. And I just, for clarity's sake, want to give you his one-paragraph explanation about what is and isn't happening here. He says, the curious thing about the second alternative, and if you've read the book, what he's talking about is Paul has two options here. Do I live or do I die? Option two is death. He says, the curious thing about the second alternative, Paul dying rather than living, is that Paul actually agrees with his captors. He would indeed be better off dead. It's like he's saying, what I'd really love is to leave all this and go to be with the king, Jesus. Here's the point of why I'm introducing this. He says, this is not a death wish in, in the sense of someone losing self-esteem, becoming terminally depressed, and longing to get out of this life as quickly as possible. Paul hasn't given up here. That's not what's happening. What he's saying is, is Paul is not like a suicidal at this point. He's a man who is focused on and deeply in love with his king. He sees redemption permanently at the end of the tunnel of this, this trial he's in. He's a man who, even with the high potential of death in front of him, is living with Jesus at the center of his life. He's literally saying, life would be easier and better for me if I could leave the hardship of this world behind. If I could leave the hardship of remaining faithful to Jesus and suffering because of it behind. There is no more suffering when you go to be with the king. Amen. But Paul confidently says this. And this is why he can face death. And even though you're not in a Philippian jail cell right now, I just want to say this is why we can face death in the same way. Death for the Christian, according to Paul, and the greater narrative of Scripture, it is a net gain. It is, it, this is going to sound weird, but it's actually better than life that, as we know it now. It's, it's more Jesus without the troubles of the world. And what he's saying here, what we see is that his, his deep belief that neither the circumstances of life nor the threat of death can separate him from Jesus. He knows this, and because of it, it creates this boldness in him that takes away the sting of death. He's not bowing to the reality of death. He's victoriously living over it, what Paul just said in Corinthians, because of his God. Now that said, there's, we're using words like victory and abundance and life. These are bravado words. They're important words because they are real. But that said, I want to share with you what this boldness that Paul has is, is not. There's an important thought that needs to be brought up here. We're talking a good bit about what Paul is doing right now, how he's seeing his situation. But we will be amiss if we do not explain what Paul is not doing right now. And this is where we introduce this second uh, teaching from 2 Corinthians. We see it in what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. There Paul writes about what he felt before he was released. Remember, this is him writing to the church at Corinth after this has happened, chronologically speaking. He's writing about what he felt before he was released. He's giving them a different side of the emotional reality of the cell. And he's telling this to the Corinthian church. And he tells them he came to a point where he really thought he would be executed. And, and when that happened, his spirit suffered. This is what he felt. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. He's doing what I'm trying to do. Don't be uninformed about death. This is not easy. Know the reality of it. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Life itself. That's the question. Indeed, he says, we felt we had received the sentence of death. 
But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Remember, death has no sting. He recognizes death means new life in Jesus. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And so you know in Paul's writings, delivering us does not necessarily mean delivered in the physical. He is in full, he's fully aware of the fact that deliverance might be ultimate deliverance. It might be death that leads to a permanency with Jesus. But the point of this is to say the reality of death was a sobering thought even for an apostle, right? The guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He had the same emotional feelings you and I do. I'm confident if he was here, uh, Paul would identify with the first truth that we discussed this morning. He would say, yeah, death, even though it loses its thing for the Christian, will never be easy. He says it here. This is why I want you to know that don't be uninformed. There's a real problem here. But there's also something we can learn from, from Paul's emotions. Paul's emotions are definitely subjected to the tumultuous waves of the oceans of life. He is human. He has the same feelings you and I do. Yet we see his circumstances. They certainly affect him. His feelings come and go. They came and went, right? He's, he's high on the horse one day, a little bit lower the next day. The, the reality of being defined by emotion is a problem. His feelings come and go here. However, his faith in God does not. In every passage we've read, ultimately the way he navigates through the, the emotion is by fixating himself on the reality and the permanency of who Jesus is. And you see there's a strong distinction we as believers must learn to identify in the midst of any hardship, death included. This is just the one we're talking about today. It is this. It is entirely possible... And according to Paul, it's a mark of maturity in Jesus. When we get to the place in our lives where we can actually have a hope and joy in Jesus in the midst of a trial, when we don't have the emotional happiness that most of us are driven by, and in some cases, we demand to have in order to feel joyful in life. In other words, if we're not happy, there is no joy. If circumstances are not good, we have no joy. What Paul is saying is, and what we're seeing is, is it's the exact opposite. If you truly want happiness in life, you have to understand what joy is. Joy is what dictates happiness. Because joy is not an emotion. And therefore, happiness is far more than fleeting feelings. What I'm saying here is that Paul learns to sense the difference between a faith and joy in Jesus and an unhealthy hope in seeking joy from feelings. You can't be happy if you're looking for... If you're looking to be bubbly in the prison cell here, you can't. You need something deeper than that. Or when death comes or when trial comes... And how do we know that he's distinguished between the two? Well, this is how we're going to close this morning. He literally says, it's better for me to die, because if I die, I get more Jesus. He recognizes there's a, a healthy selfishness in that. But he says, it's better for all of you, and he's speaking to the world, it's better for all of you for me to remain in this cell and be freed so I can continue to share God's grace with the world. In his struggle, what he's saying is it's actually a greater sacrifice for, for, him, for him to live than it is for him to die. Now try wrapping your mind around that. His desire to continue living, living and suffering for our sake, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, is a greater sacrifice for him. Because it actually means he's going, key statement, he's going to get a little less Jesus and a lot more trouble in his own life. So the world can have a lot less trouble and a little more Jesus in theirs. I want to say that again. The sacrifice Paul makes here, you know, we talk about pursuing Jesus, heart, soul, and mind. We talk about laying down everything to pursue Jesus. But here Paul makes what is perhaps the greatest sacrifice in the New Testament apart from Jesus. He says, I'm going to take a little less Jesus so that you can have a whole lot more. He's sacrificing his permanency and his peace. 
He's going to get a little less Jesus and a lot more trouble in his own life. So the world can have a lot less trouble and a little more Jesus in theirs. The expansion of the gospel to the world. There were guys starting churches in the first century. And sure, Jesus' presence is still robustly there in his life. Paul does not long. Paul's not missing. But he's not completed yet. Not in the way it would be if he was in Jesus' eternal presence. Yet he lays aside that emotional longing. He puts aside the feeling to permanently be with Jesus, to leave this world and its troubles behind, and he chooses to endure the trials and hardship on our behalf for his God. He sacrifices his eternal comfort for us. That, I think, is amazing. Uh, that is a guy who gets the gospel. That's a guy who truly lives for Christ. Amen. And in a few minutes, we're going to come to the communion table, and we're going to see how strong this sacrificial reality is in the Christian faith. So the question we have to ask ourselves now is do you, do I get the gospel like that? Are we thinking about life and death and everything in between those end caps through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of an eternity with him? Well, that changes the way the present is if you see life like that. Are you seeing Jesus as the ultimate prize in life? Or has something else been given that title? Are you living for something else that is not Jesus, as if it is him? And the beauty, when it comes to death especially, of a life in Jesus like this, the beauty of of recognizing life on this earth and life afterwards is that that benevolent childlike naivete that children have that we talked about at the beginning of this sermon when it comes to death the fact that they think we should live forever and as adults our hope is the same it actually can become a truth that isn't naive anymore it's it's a truth that now shapes reality it becomes the guiding moniker for life and death because according to Paul and the grace of Jesus and his sacrifice for the person who loves and follows Jesus there is no more death. There is only Jesus on earth and more Jesus when you leave this earth. Death is kind of like the vessel that moves you to a lot more Jesus. And that's why I want you to think about this as we approach the communion table. As we close, ask yourself, think of death. Do you fear it? Does it rule you? Do you ignore it? You know it's out there, but you don't want to mess with it yet. Or do you have what we would consider a healthy respect for it, a recognition of it? but it does not own you. You know that even though it comes eventually for everyone, at some point, it's inevitable, you know that it holds no sway or no power over you. It is simply a transitional vessel to get you a lot more Jesus, which is what the root of heaven is. It's not necessarily metaphorically gold-paved streets. The gold is presence, permanency with Jesus. That's what heaven is. You know, for the Christian, death leads to a greater life. Jesus. And so ask yourself, when it comes to Jesus, what he says about death, and what we see in, in this book, Paul has believed what Jesus has said about death. You see the reality of it is life victory. What is Jesus saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, you know, it's funny, I say this a lot, and sometimes it just sounds silly. Thank you for death. Um, because without it, none of us would be here without the reality of Jesus' death, without the, the fact that you not only give us hope in death, but endured it yourself for us, without that, God, there is no faith. And so what, what an example of you redeeming hardship for good. And I pray, Lord, as we process the communion table this morning, as we think about uh, the ultimate sacrifice that brought life to the world, Christ on the cross, life for us. I pray, God, that we would truly focus on you. I pray, Lord, that the words of the table 
the time we have reflecting on our relationship with you, they would guide us. May this be a day, even though we have talked heavily about death, may it be a, a day, God, where we leave with the reality that life is available to all of us for those who trust and turn to Christ. And not just turn to him to, for belief, but, but turn to him for a life abundant, a, a daily pursuit of who Jesus is. May we have life, life, and more life because of who your son is. And may we focus now on that truth. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.